Chapter 9, Part 2 of 2 of The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marty on the Central Coast of California. The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 9 harry and his father rose at the first silver shoot of dawn and went quickly through the deserted street to a quiet cove in the kentucky where samuel jarvis had anchored his raft it was a crisp morning with a tang in the air that made life feel good a thin curl of smoke was rising from the raft showing that the man and his nephew were already up and cooking in the little hut on the raft harry stepped upon the logs and his father followed him. Jarvis was just pouring coffee from a tin pot into a tin cup, and Ike was turning over some strips of bacon in an iron skillet on an iron stove. Both of them, watchful like all mountaineers, had heard the visitors coming, but they did not look up until they were on the raft. "'Morning,' called Jarvis cheerfully. "'Look, Ike, it's the big fish that we hooked out of the river last night, and he's got company.' I want to thank you for saving my son's life, said the colonel. I reckon, then, that you're Colonel George Kenton, said Jarvis. Wall, you don't owe us no thanks. I'm of an inquiring turn of mine, and whenever I see a man or boy floating along in the river, I always fish him out, just to see who and what he is. My curiosity's powerful strong, colonel, and it leads me to do a lot of things that I wouldn't do if it wasn't for it. Set and take a bite with us. This air is nipping, and it makes my teeth tremendous sharp. We're with you, said the colonel, who was adaptable and who saw at once that Jarvis was a man of high character. It's cool on the river, and that coffee will warm one up mighty well. It's fine coffee, said Jarvis proudly. Aunt Suze taught me how to make it. She learned when you didn't get coffee often, and you had to make the most of it when you did get it. Who's Aunt Suze? Aunt Susan, or Suze as we call her for short, is back home in the hills. She's a good hundred, Colonel, and two or three yards more to boot, I reckon, but as spry as a kitten. Full of tales o' the early days, and the wild beasts and the Injuns. She says you couldn't make up any story of them times that ain't beat by the truth. When she come up the wilderness road from Virginia in the Revolution, she was already a young woman. She's no Dan'l Boone and Simon Kenton and all them grand old fellers. A tremendous interesting old lady is my Aunt Sue's colonel. I have no doubt of it, Mr. Jarvis, said Colonel Kenton. But I don't think I can wait a second longer for a cup of that coffee of yours. It smells so good that if you don't give it to me, I'll have to take it from you. Jarvis grinned cheerfully. Harry saw that his father had already made a skillful appeal to the mountaineer's pride. Ay, you lunkhead, he said to his nephew. I told the colonel to set, but we didn't give him anything to set on. Pull up them blocks of wood for him and his son. Now you'll take breakfast with us, won't you, colonel? The bacon and the corn cakes are ready, too. Of course we will, said the colonel. 
and gladly too it makes me young again to eat this way in the fresh air of a cool morning samuel jarvis shone as a host the breakfast was served on a smooth stump put on board for that purpose the coffee was admirable and the bacon and thin corn cakes were cooked beautifully good butter was spread over the corn cakes and harry and his father were surprised at the number they ate ike addressed by his uncle variously and collectively as lunkhead nephew and ike served he rarely spoke but always grinned harry found later that while he had little use for his vocal organs he invariably enjoyed life colonel said jarvis at about the tenth corn cake be you fellers down here a-goin' a fight? I suppose we are, Mr. Jarvis. And is your son there goin' right into the middle of it? I can't keep him from it, Mr. Jarvis, but he isn't going to stay here in Kentucky. Other plans have been made for him. When are you going back up the Kentucky, Mr. Jarvis? This raft was bargained for before it started. All I've got to do is turn it over to its new owners today. Go to the bank and get the money. Then me and this lunkhead, Ike, my nephew, both being of an inquiring mind, want to do some sightseeing, but I reckon we'll start back in about two days in the boat that you see tied to the stern of the raft. Would you take a passenger in the boat? It's a large one. Samuel Jarvis pursed his lips. Depends on who it is, he replied. It takes a lot of time going upstream to get back to our start, and a cantankerous passenger in as narrow a place as a rowboat would make it mighty unpleasant for me and this lunkhead, Ike, my nephew. Wouldn't it, Ike? Ike grinned and nodded. The passenger I'm speaking of wouldn't be a passenger altogether, said Colonel Kenton. He'd like to be one of the crew also, and I don't think he'd make trouble. Anyway, he's got a claim on you already. Having fished him out of the river, where he was unconscious, it's your duty to take care of him for a while. It's my son Harry, who wants to get across the mountains to Virginia, and we'll be greatly obliged to you if you'll take him. Colonel Kenton had a most winning manner. He already liked Jarvis, and Jarvis liked him. I reckon your son is all right, said Jarvis, and if he gets cantankerous, we can just pitch him overboard into the Kentucky. But I can't undertake such a contract without consulting my junior partner, this lunkhead, my nephew, Ike Simmons. Ike, are you willing to take Colonel Kenton's son back with us? If you're willing, say yes. If and you ain't willing, say no. Ike said nothing, but grinned and nodded. The resolution is passed and Harry Kenton is accepted, said Jarvis. We start day after tomorrow morning, early. Breakfast was finished, and Colonel Kenton rose and thanked them. He still said nothing about pay. But, after he and Harry had entered the town, he said, You couldn't have better friends, Harry. Both the man and the boy are as true as steel, and, as they have no intention of taking part in the war, they will just suit you as traveling companions. They spent the larger part of the day in buying the boy's equipment, doing it as quietly as possible, as the colonel wished his son to depart without attracting any notice. 
in such times as those secrecy was much to be desired a rifle pistols plenty of ammunition an extra suit of clothes a pair of blankets and a good supply of money were all that he took one small package which contained a hundred dollars in gold coins he put in an inside pocket of his waistcoat you are to give that to jarvis just after you start said the colonel we cannot pay him directly for saving you because he will not take it but you can insist that this is for your passage they were all at the cove before dawn on the appointed morning colonel kenton was to say harry's good-bye for him to his friends the whole departure had been arranged with so much skill that they alone knew of it the boat was strong shaped well and had two pairs of oars a heavy canvas sheet could be erected as a kind of awning or tent in the rear in case of rain they carried plenty of food and jarvis said that in addition they were more than likely to pick up a deer or two on the way both he and ike carried long-barreled rifles the three stepped into the boat good-bye harry said the colonel reaching down a strong hand that trembled good-bye father said harry returning the clasp with another strong hand that trembled also people in that region were not demonstrative family affection was strong but they were reared on the cold stern puritan plan and the handshake and the brief words were all then jarvis and his silent nephew bent to the oars and the boat shot up the deep channel of the kentucky harry looked back and in the dusk saw his father still standing at the edge of the cove he waved a hand and the colonel waved back then they disappeared around a curve of the hills and the first light of dawn began to drift over the kentucky harry was silent for a long time he was becoming used to sudden and hard traveling and danger but the second parting with his father moved him deeply since he had been twelve or thirteen years of age they had not been only father and son but comrades and in the intimate association he had acquired more of a man's mind than was usual in one of his years he felt now since he was going to the east and the colonel was remaining in the west that the parting was likely to be long perhaps forever it was no morbid feeling it was the consciousness that a great and terrible war was at hand although but a youth he had been in the forefront of things he had been at montgomery and sumter and he had seen the fire and zeal of the south he had been at frankfort too and he had seen how the gathering force of the massive north had refused to be moved his father and his friends with all their skill and force strengthened by the power of kinship and sentiment had been unable to take kentucky out of the union harry was so thoroughly absorbed in these thoughts that he did not realize how very long he remained silent he was sitting in the stern of the boat with a face naturally joyous heavily overcast jarvis and ike were rowing and with innate delicacy they did not disturb him they too said nothing but they were powerful oarsmen and they sent the heavy skiff shooting up the stream the kentucky a deep river at any time was high from the spring floods and the current offered but little resistance the man of mighty sinews and the boy of sinews almost as mighty pulled a long and regular stroke without any quickening of the breath the dawn deepened into the full morning 
the silver of the river became blue with a filmy gold mist spread over it by the rising sun high banks crested with green enclosed them on either side and beyond lay higher hills their slopes and summits all living green the singing of birds came from the bushes on the banks and a sudden flash of flame told where a scarlet tanager had crossed the last house of frankfort dropped behind them and soon the boat was shooting along the deep channel cut by the kentucky through the blue grass then the richest and most beautiful region of the west abounding in famous men and in the height of its glory it had never looked more splendid the grass was deeply luxuriant and young flowers bloomed at the water's edge the fields were divided by neat stone fences and far off harry saw men working on the slopes jarvis and ike were still silent the man glanced at harry and saw that he had not yet come from his absorption but samuel jarvis was a joyous soul he was forty years old and he had lived forty happy years the money for his lumber was in his pocket he did not know ache or pain and he was going back to his home in an inmost recess of the mountains from which high point he could view the civil war passing around him and far below he could restrain himself no longer and lifting up his voice he sang but the song like nearly all songs the mountaineers sing had a melancholy note nita nita wanita be my own fair bride he sang and the wailing note confined between the high walls of the stream took on a great increase in volume and power jarvis had one of those uncommon voices sometimes found among the unlearned a deep full tenor without a harsh note when he sang he put his whole heart into the words and the effect was often wonderful harry roused himself suddenly he was hearing the same song that he had heard the night he went into the river locked fast in skelly's arms nita nita wanita rang the tenor note rising and falling and dying away in wailing echoes as the boat sped on then harry resolutely turned his face to the future the will has a powerful effect over the young and when he made the effort to throw off sadness it fell easily from him all at once he was embarked with good comrades upon a journey of tremendous interest jarvis noticed the change upon his face but said nothing he pulled with a long slow stroke suited to the solemn refrain of juanita which he continued to pour forth with his soul in every word they went on deeper into the blue grass the blue sky above them was now dappled with golden clouds and the air grew warmer but jarvis and his nephew showed no signs of weariness when harry judged that the right time had come he asked to relieve ike at the oar ike looked at jarvis and jarvis nodded to ike then ike nodded to harry which indicated consent but harry before taking the oar drew a small package from his pocket and handed it to jarvis my father asked me to give you this he said as a remembrance and 
also as some small recompense for the trouble that I will cause you on this trip. Jarvis took it and heard the heavy coins clink together. I know without opening it that this is money, he said, but being of an inquiring turn of mind, I reckon I've got to look into it and count it. He did so deliberately, coin by coin, and his eyes opened a little at the size of the sum. It's too much, he said. Besides, you take your turn at the oars. It's partly as a souvenir, said Harry, and it would hurt my father very much if he did not take it. Besides, I should have to leave the boat the first time it tied up if you refuse. Jarvis looked humorously at him. I believe you're a stubborn sort of feller, he said, but somehow I took kind of liking to you. I suppose it's because I fished you out of the river. You always think that the fish you catch yourself are the best. Do you reckon that's the reason why we like him, Ike? Ike nodded. Then, being as we don't want to lose your company, and seeing that you mean what you say, we'll keep the gold, though half of it must go to that lunkhead, Ike, my nephew. Then it's settled, said Harry, and we'll never say another word about it. You agree to that? Yes, replied Jarvis, and Ike nodded. Harry took his place at the oar. Although he was not as skillful as Ike, he did well, and the boat sped on upon the deep bosom of the Kentucky. The work was good for Harry. It made his blood flow once more in a full tide, and he felt a distinct elation. Jarvis began singing again. He changed from Juanita to poor Nellie Gray. And poor Nellie Gray, she's up in heaven, they say. And I shall never see my darling any more. Harry found his oar swinging to the tune as Ike's had swung to that of Juanita, and he did not feel fatigue. They met few people on the river. Once a raft passed them, but Jarvis, looking at it keenly, said that it had come down from one of the northern forks of the Kentucky, and not from his part of the country. They saw skiffs two or three times, but did not stop to exchange words with their occupants, continuing steadily into the heart of the bluegrass. They relieved one another throughout the day, and at night, tired but cheerful, drew up their boat at a point where there was a narrow stretch of grass between the water and the cliff, with a rope ferry three or four hundred yards further on. We'll tie up the boat here, cook supper, and sleep on dry ground said Jarvis. End of chapter 9, part 2 of 2. Recorded by Marty on the central coast of California.